welcome to the Voice of Lang. You're here today with Gary Hawksworth, senior claims executive, and Sarah Bottomley, team leader, casualty. So we're going to be talking about a recent piece of case law and how that can help you defend your claims in terms of slip trips. So this is mainly focused towards retail clients and our hospitality clients. Slip trips and falls are probably the most frequent public liability claim that we deal with here at Thaland. It's probably the ones that frustrates our clients more than most. Yeah, I would agree. Because they involve members of the public who are not colleagues or employees or contractors, so they're not under the control of a client. It's not a controlled in work environment that they're in. They're coming into technically a public space. It's more difficult to control that as a client. So when people are falling over and causing costs to the business, I think that's frustrating as a client because you want them to be safe, but also you can't control them all of the time. From a client point of view, I suspect that often they don't really understand how these claims succeed and on what basis they succeed on. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I agree. I think they get frustrated that they get paid out more often than not. Yeah. But I think it's important to understand what the Occupier's Liability Act says and what that means for a client. So I think the case that we're going to talk about today gives some really good background around that and how clients can defend those claims better. Okay, that's an interesting one. In terms of the Occupier's Liability Act, what does that broadly say? Essentially, the Occupier's Liability Act states that if you occupy a property or a premises, you have a duty of care to maintain that premises in a clean and safe state as far as reasonably practicable. One of our favourite phrases in claims. So essentially that means if you're running a business, you have a duty of care to maintain that property that the business is running within in a clean and safe way whilst also running your business and making money. So you're inviting people in to buy a drink, have a nice time, enjoy themselves, have a dance or purchase something, have a consumer experience, but they don't expect to be injured whilst they're there. So yes, you're inviting them into your property. So you need to make sure that that property is well maintained and it's safe and it's clean so that they're not having accidents and they're not injuring themselves whilst they're there. So does this actually still apply where trespassers are concerned? Yeah, technically. So if you have control of a car park as part of your premises, but your business is closed overnight because you don't open overnight, you still have a duty to maintain the car park area and outside and make sure it's safe and it's clean so that if anybody is walking on it or through it, then obviously they're safe and they're not going to have an accident. Okay. So for example, if you've got somebody walking across a car park that you own and maintain, that has a pothole in it which you were aware of prior to the accident happening, even if your business is closed and that person is walking across that car park when you're not open, you still have a duty of care to maintain that premises in a clean and safe way. Absolutely. And it is a great frustration on clients that those type of claims are paid because they feel my business is not in operation, but at the same time, someone comes onto their land, has an accident and brings a claim. Yeah. Which is totally understandable. Yeah. But there are ways around that which we're going to talk about today. Yeah, and I I think we've got a case in mind, which is a case inside a building, Mm. which is a case that in the past we've probably seen a lot of claims paid. Yeah. 
I would agree. And I think this case is really encouraging for clients who run these kind of businesses that pay a lot of these claims because I think there's a kind of light at the end of the tunnel now that they are actually defendable and they can get a good result on those cases. Yeah, absolutely. So what's the case called? So the case is Wade versus Apre Lounge Limited in 2023. So really, really recent. So what happened in this case then? So Miss Wade, the claimant, was visiting Apre Lounge Limited in Leicester when she slipped on what was thought to be a spilt drink near to the bar counter and injured herself. So she brought her claim both for negligence and for breach of the Occupier's Liability Act. It was accepted that she had slipped as the accident wasn't disputed in its entirety, but Apre Lounge obviously wanted to defend it because they think they had sufficient measures in place to prevent that happening. So this is a claim in a licensed bar yeah. late at night where people have been drinking? Yeah. So I think if we go back to the Occupier's Liability Act, especially where hospitality is concerned, you're inviting people into your property not only to purchase drinks that you're selling them, but those drinks are most likely going to make that person intoxicated and therefore probably struggling to stay upright, let's say. So I think when you're sort of talking about the occupier's duty, it's slightly different with hospitality because you're inviting them to get drunk, therefore sort of be more vulnerable, I suppose. So in this case, obviously this Mrs. Wade has come in and she slipped over and injured herself. She didn't expect to do that when she came out for a night out or for some drinks. So she's obviously then wanted to make a claim because she's injured and she thinks Apre Lounger at fault for that. I think it's fair to say that we've probably seen hundreds of claims like this paid in the past. These are often found to be quite difficult to defend, but on this occasion, it's been managed. Usually these claims are paid most of the time because there is very little evidence to prove that the cleaning policies in place were adhered to, that they were working, or just simply how long that spillage has been on the floor. So a lot of the time, if somebody had spilt their drink and three seconds later someone had fallen over, that's quite a short period of time between that drink falling on the floor and somebody slipping over. However, Often there is no evidence or there's no way of proving how long that spillage has been there, which is one of the main reasons why these kind of claims get paid. Obviously, CCTV really helps in those cases. I know a lot of hospitality have really good footage in terms of CCTV. They have great coverage. Similarly, in retail, that's getting a lot better. But there's always going to be blind spots or especially in the case of a busy bar, there's going to be a lot of people around you can't necessarily see the floor. So it comes down to processes and practices and evidence in what's actually happened. Yeah, and to evidence that those processes and practices were adhered to at the time. So the Wade case, do you know what happened? So at Prey Lounge have a system of monitoring, which includes looking for spillages every 10 to 15 minutes. Initially, the judge deemed them liable on the basis that, in his opinion, a system of checks every 10 to 15 minutes was not sufficient to discharge the occupier's duty under the Act. I mean, we know that they end up winning this case, but I think... That decision on the behalf of the judge is a little mean, I would say. (laughs) Um, Every 10 to 15 minutes, in my experience, is really good for a hospitality business. You know, they're busy, they're serving people at bars, they've got a lot going on. They're managing people who, like we said, are drunk, probably vulnerable, and they're trying to run a business. And to be able to do that every 10 to 15 minutes, I think, is great. 
and probably beyond reasonable practicability. However, the judge didn't agree with that initially. So his reasoning was that the risk of spillages was likely in a busier area of the bar. It was likely to be slippery when the floor was wet. Um, there was no evidence as to how long a spillage had been there. No evidence was taken from those who were undertaking the monitoring and these checks weren't documented. So I think Gary, you'll agree that we see that a lot, that defendants are criticised for not documenting those checks. But if you run in a bar or you run in a retail business, it's not practical to be writing those checks down every 10 to 15 minutes. Oh, absolutely. Restaurants and bars have a huge responsibility to look after their customers. And they do it. They don't often have time to fill in lots of forms and documents. But like you said, this was the decision at the first instance and then subsequently it was overturned, wasn't it? Yeah, so Apre Lounge wanted to appeal on the grounds that the judge was wrong in law to find that the checks every 10 to 15 minutes were not sufficient to satisfy the duty of care, which is what we discussed before. And the judge imposed an unreasonably high burden on them, which I would agree. The judge failed to indicate what system they ought to have operated. And it was unreasonable for the judge to find that the system in operation was insufficient, particularly when it was not Mrs. Wade's case that more frequent inspections were required. So Mr. Justice Knowles on appeal accepted that Apre Lounge's systems were sufficiently proactive and having regard to the realities of running a late night bar, the system of floor inspections by several members of staff as described was sufficient to fulfil their statutory duty, which is a great result. I think we can both agree. Uh, absolutely. I think for any business that undertakes an operation where they're inspecting and checking the floors and the bar every every 10 to 15 minutes is really working really hard to protect their customers. So it's great that actually the decision was made in this case. Yeah, I agree. And I think a lot of our hospitality clients will think that every 10 to 15 minutes is quite high, but then you kind of move into how you implement those policies and procedures on a day-to-day -day basis. So I suppose it's making employees more aware of what they need to be looking out for. So, you know, as a member of the bar staff, you're out on the kind of shop floor, so to speak, all of the time. You can see what's going on. You're serving people. Yes, you're busy, but you're probably out and about. You're taking glasses to be washed. You're moving around the bar area. So I suppose it's that awareness of keeping your eyes out for what's going on. Yes, you're looking at, you know, customers to make sure that they're not too drunk and that you're kind of discharging a duty in that area, but also whilst you're walking around the bar, keep your eyes out, see what's going on, if yeah. there's any hazards. Similarly, are people leaving bags and coats on the floor? Yeah. Are they getting in the way? Are they causing a trip hazard? It's the same kind of thing, really. And I guess going back to the 10 or 15 minute inspection regime, which is quite tight. I guess it's the old adage about each case on its own merits. So one bar might not be that busy that they require that level of checks. Mm. So you might be able to take longer to do it and it still could be defendable. Yeah, and I think also, especially with hospitality, you've got kind of peaks and troughs throughout the day. Yeah. If we're talking about a sort of typical gastro pub, let's say, you know, you're going to be busy at lunchtime, so you're going to be busy in the evening, yeah. but you're going to have periods of the day where it is quite quiet. You've not got a lot of customers coming in. So you're not going to be needing to do it every 10 to 15 minute check yeah. at that point because you can pretty much see all your customers are sat down having a pint of real ale. So it's not going to be a problem. But when it is busy in the evenings, I think it's really important to take advantage of the movement of colleagues around the bar area where they're kind of coming and going sort of making them more aware that they need to be checking for those kind of things yeah. and I think once it's become second nature it feels like a lot to do initially but it could be the case that you know you're in this position and that's what's gonna kind of clinch your defense essentially absolutely, absolutely. 
I guess one of the things with this case as well is the reason that they succeeded in defending it was the quality of the investigation mm. that they made. There's often cases that we'll see where the client will be immensely frustrated something's happened, but we haven't got any evidence to which to defend it. Mm. In this case, there was CCTV as well as some great witness statements. In terms of CCTV and witness statements, what do you feel makes a great witness statement or a great piece of CCTV? I'll talk about the witness statements first. I think it's really important to take those statements as soon as possible after the accident. Sometimes, you know, and you can bring an injury claim up to three years post-accident. Yeah. So often in retail and hospitality venues, you have a high turnover of staff. So that member of staff who was there at the time might not be there anymore. So you yep. can't ask them anyway. So I think it's really important to get that written down at the time as soon as possible afterwards. Okay, yeah, it's busy. Do it at the end of your shift when you sure. can remember what had happened. So in terms of statements, I think getting down what happened, what was going on at the time. Did anybody inspect the floor at the time? Were their trousers wet? That kind of thing. Just trying to get everything down on paper as soon as possible after it's happened. CCTV, I think if someone's going to report an accident to you and you weren't aware of it, I think going to view that CCTV again as soon as possible is really important. I know a lot of venues have a kind of 28-day, 30-day sort of wipe over on their CCTV. So trying to secure that as soon as possible is really good. A lot of the time, or some of the time I should say, customers will report an accident and you'll look at the CCTV and there's no accident there. Yep. And clients are like, oh, I won't bother burning it off because there's no accident. Sometimes yeah, that is the evidence. Yeah there's, yeah, there's nothing better than saying there's nothing there. Yeah, Have a look at it. Here it is. So I think if in doubt, burn it off, put it with the rest of your accident investigation and keep it somewhere safe. And I think as an aside on that, I know some clients are a little worried about retaining CCTV and the GDPR yeah. implications of that. But I think... You know, there are exceptions in GDPR and one of those exceptions is for accident investigation for further mitigation of accidents because all of these accident investigations are going to go towards reducing accidents and managing your risk appetite, I suppose. And it's a legal process anyway. Yeah, and they've got to do that. So if you're conducting proper and full accident investigations, I would expect CCTV to be in there. And to say, well, I didn't keep it because of GDPR isn't really going to stand up <laughs> if you, if um, you end up going to trial in front of a judge. I, I think for me, in terms of witness statements, I, I love the kind of statements where people have actually asked questions of the person giving the statement. Mm. So to really get down to the actual facts, what they really saw, what really happened, and not put opinion in it. Yeah. Uh, the other aspect for me with CCTV is often you'll get a piece of footage which will literally show you just the accident, mm. often immediately before, mm. maybe for 15 minutes and immediately after an accident, 15 minutes. Mm. That can also be really, really telling in terms of what really happened, especially if people have deliberately fallen. Yeah. Or deliberately put water on the floor to do something. Yeah. And equally, if it is a true accident, you can see if anyone's cleared that up afterwards yeah. or like we were talking about before, when did that actually fall on the floor? Yeah. Okay, sometimes it's not possible. It's a dance floor. You can't really see that going on. But it could be, you know, you just walk into your table through a restaurant, yeah. in which case 
has someone just fallen over and dropped it. I think I've definitely seen people falling over whilst walking along holding their drinks. Yeah. And they claim that there was something on the floor, but yeah. the thing on the floor was the drink that you were holding when you fell over. We've seen that so many times yeah, over the years. time and time again. And I think the other thing it can show, it can actually show you how good your processes are. So it can show the background checks of, oh, yeah, our weights did go through that area five minutes ago and did check it. Yeah, and I think the CCTV can help you with that as well because, like you're saying, you can see them doing that. Yeah. So you can see them in the area, you can see them checking it or at least passing through. And like you said, if they can come back and say, well, five minutes ago there was nothing there, you can't get anything better than that, really. And it's on CCTV. CCTV is the best evidence you can have for that. Yeah, yeah, it is. So... Evidence is key here, isn't it? Mm. And often we, we don't see the evidence that we need. Yeah. And what, what, does, what does that actually mean? So I think in terms of advice for clients going forward, one of the things that's really important is documenting things. So yes, okay, we were talking about the checks before. It's not always possible to document that, but document the fact that you do those checks. So basically detail what your process is. Yeah. So we see quite a few clients who have a process yeah. and it's told to staff verbally yeah. so maybe at the beginning of the shift or in their induction yeah. that they're told this is the process for slip trips you go and get the cleaning kit you do x y yeah. and z but it's not actually written down anywhere so when it comes to when a claim arises how do we know what that process is if you've only ever said it you've not got any evidence of it being written down and we don't know if the people who were there on the shift at time had that training anyway do we no, so I think that's another point. If you are going to train people, have some record that you've trained them, what that training included. Yes, it might be a bit of outlay work at the beginning, but once you've documented all of that and you've got that and you can say, okay, well, all of these people have been through that training, then you can tick that off. You've got the content there. And I guess once you've started, it's then a process of every now and again, you're going to do a refresher. So you're going to document that. Yeah, so I think after, well, it's good practice after every accident that you would review your risk assessments, you'd look at your processes to check that they're still working. And I think through your accident investigation, you should know whether that's working yeah. or whether it's not working, depending on the outcome of the accident and the root cause, I suppose. But it's always good to kind of go back and check. So maybe have an annual check and look and is this actually working? Let's look at our accidents for the last 12 months. Has that actually prevented it? Has it helped us? Or do we need to do more? So, so using your accident book and your near misses mm. as a way to review actually what's going on in the business. Yeah, so I think it's really important to use your accident MI. A lot of clients focus on the claims MI and how much yeah. it's cost them and it's easy because there's a financial attached to that. But I think looking at your accident numbers, yeah. where it's happening, why it's happening, your hotspots, what time of day, who's involved in those accidents can really give you a great picture of where your gaps are. So yeah, I think all of those things are something that you could be doing now, having a look at those processes. Have you got them written down? Do you analyze your accidents? Is your accident investigation meaty enough? Do you need to be looking at more stuff? Do you need to be collating more things when the accidents happened? Yeah. I think that's the main takeaway really for me is is getting that information when it's happened rather than, oh, we'll leave it till next week and then we've kind of forgotten what's happened and we didn't look at the CCTV, you know, doing it at the end of the shift or beginning of the shift the next day, that's fine. So if you if you did find a hotspot, mm. what would you maybe do? I think, you know, review on what that hotspot is. So is it a particular point in the bar? Yeah. Is it a piece of equipment? Is it yeah. behaviour of customers, say? And I think... Design. Or design of the building, yeah. So I think 
it's looking at what that hotspot is yeah. and then thinking, is there any, any way that we can kind of mitigate the risks associated with that? You know, is the floor particularly slippy? Could we put some signs out? Could we put some hazard tape out? Which I understand isn't the most attractive thing, but is it then a case of, from a maintenance perspective, do we need to relay the floor and is there something we yeah. could do? Similarly, a piece of equipment, is it being inspected often enough? Do people know that it's broken? Has it broken recently and just, oh, we haven't got anyone to fix it and it's just sort of sat there? So I think it depends on what the hotspot is, yeah. but then sort of looking at what your opportunities are to stop that being a hotspot. And do you ever find that perhaps you've come too close to the data? Yeah, you can do, but I think obviously it depends how much data you've got. I know some of our clients have a hell of a lot yeah. of data and some of them don't. So I think you don't want to get too nitty gritty if you've only got yeah. seven accidents in a year. But I think just looking at some headline information from those accidents isn't going to hurt. So if you were looking at you've got the same number of sites as you had a year before, but you've got twice as many accidents, you might look at that as an issue. Yeah. <laughs> so are photographs any use in accident investigation these days? Yeah, I definitely think they are. It's something that you can do, like we said, immediately after. That's yeah. really quick. It's really easy. Yeah. You've probably got a phone on you at the time. Yeah. You can just take that photo, keep it, upload it to your accident investigation. I know a lot of clients have electronic accident books those kind of things systems so you can add in the cctv you can add in any photos that kind of yeah. thing so i think you know maybe recording the direction of travel of someone whilst they're moving yeah, where they're going where they were going to have they walked over that area before has someone in their party was were they walking in front of them and they've been fine and haven't fallen over all of those kind of things would be really helpful i, th I think the other thing it can do as well a photograph taken at the time will show the level of light so you'll be able to see any differences in levels, especially at night. Yeah, and I think a lot of bars have sort of maybe atmospheric mood lighting, yes. which, like he said, in the daytime is very different to how it looks in the nighttime. And I'm not saying you've got to, you know, keep the big light on all day, yep. but I suppose, like you said, it gives an accurate picture of what it was like at the time of the accident when that person fell over. Yeah, and you've got to accept that with anything, there's an element of risk. Yeah. Unless you're going to wrap everyone up in cotton wool. Yeah, so it goes back to the risk appetite. Sort of moving on from the lighting, yeah, you might have some kind of mood lighting, but equally, I know a lot of bars these days look very nice and they're very fancy and the floors are probably very slippy or there's glass walls or whatever it might be. They all look very nice, but sometimes if you're inebriated and probably not thinking straight, they are a bit more dangerous, but what's your trade-off? Do you want it to look nice? What's your risk appetite? And I think that could link back to the hotspot. It, it could, and it might might make you think about using a non-slip floor cleaner so yeah. that, that avoids some slips. And it might be that if you've got your entrance exit being used, say, at closing time, say it's 2 o'clock and it's pitch black, put the lights on in full. Mm. Yeah. Especially while people are just leaving. Or invest in some outdoor lighting so when they are leaving, they're not just walking straight out into the pitch black there's a yeah there's a bit of lighting outside for them absolutely so underpinning all our processes and procedures from a client point view mm. you'd go back to a risk assessment yeah so ideally you should be doing risk assessments for all of the tasks and activities that you carry out day to day yeah on site obviously that can get quite detailed but i think as long as you've got maybe general ones for the main activities that you're doing in addition to a slip trip fall, obviously manual handling, that kind of thing, then 
that should be sufficient as a kind of top line level. And I guess there are some generic ones that you can even get off the shelf. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the HSE will provide you with some good templates in terms of risk assessments. And that kind of has the added bonus of you already know the HSE will approve of it because they wrote it. And then you just adapt it a little bit for your own business. Yeah. So I think it's really important that you are telling a true picture of what's going on in the business in those risk assessments. So I've seen previously with a client, they had an accident on site, but the activity that the person was doing when they had the accident wasn't actually listed in the risk assessment. So you can produce a risk assessment, but it may not reflect the actual thing that was happening. So I think it's a case of, you know, what are we doing day to day? Is that actually reflected in this risk assessment? So maybe having the risk assessment out for a day whilst you're doing stuff and thinking, is this in there? Is that accurately reflected? And did you say it's good practice to review the risk assessment after every accident? Yeah, I think you should be. Obviously, we're all busy and now trying to run a business and make money. Ideally, yes. Even if, you know, a case of reviewing the risk assessment is just running your eye over it at the end of doing your accident investigation and saying, actually, everybody followed what they should be doing. That process was followed. We did do that. We did do that. It was just unfortunate that this thing happened completely out of our control or this thing happened that okay maybe we do need to review the risk assessment and it could just be a case of adding an extra sentence in which isn't a huge task (laughs) no it's not but it is amazing how often we do see gaps in evidence Hmm. and gaps in documentation if you don't follow processes and procedures can there be any other implications for a client other than a personal injury claim made by the person injured Yeah, so there could be enforcement action, which isn't going to look great if you're not following your own policies and procedures. So I think, yeah, it's all well and good writing them down, but don't then ignore them. You've got to be putting them into practice. So maybe it's a case of implementing um, what I would call like a plan do check act is quite a common terminology. So you write in these policies, but you also need to check that people are doing them. And if they're not doing them, you need to act on that. So it's a kind of cyclical process. So that could be a case of just doing informal observations on members of staff. Yeah. Don't tell them that you're doing it. Just whilst you're in around the bar or the shop floor, you know, be checking that people are following those processes. And all it is is a case of taking that person to one side and saying, why are you doing that? You know, we've told you that that's not what you do. And there could be a good reason. And that could be a learning to change that process. Maybe that's why people are finding shortcuts, because there is actually a quicker way of doing something. So we've touched upon enforcement activities by the HO or the local authority. Yeah. What could that mean for a business? So you could, worst case scenario, be fined or potentially sent to jail under corporate manslaughter charges. Obviously, that is quite severe, but that is always in the background as well as getting a claim. So you've got a fine, which is based on your turnover. So it could potentially be really damaging to a business. So I think it's really important to have that in the back of your mind because there is that criminal side to it as well as the civil side. Absolutely. And if we had a client that came to us and said, this action has been taken against me, what should they do? If you think that you are party to some enforcement action or you've had contact from your EHO and local authority, it's really important to let us know at Valang so that we can obviously speak to your insurer about that. It could be that they are able to organise you some legal advice and support, provide you with some legal privilege, and it's really important to get that instructed as soon as possible. So ideally from you knowing that accident has happened, but if you then, you know, get contact from an EHO, then please let us know. Yeah, and that's really to protect them, isn't it? Yeah. 
and it is for them and also your insurer will probably provide that yeah so it's something that you're not having to pay for that's as part of your policy so i think you know it's a really good idea to do that you can have someone there maybe on site to help you to give you some on-the-spot legal advice for example again i've had a client recently who had inquiries from the local coroner and we got them some legal advice and privilege in place really, really quickly, which has helped them a lot. From a privilege point of view, what what does that mean? It essentially means that that advice is protected, so it's not disclosable. It protects everything that happens there on in, essentially, from a legal standpoint. Right, sounds like a communication with your solicitor Yeah. at that point. Yeah. If you do have any enforcement activity, mm. it can be that your employees might also need some support. And in that case... Potentially, insurers can instruct separate solicitors for them to protect their interest and not have any conflicts of interest. Yeah, and I think that's really important. Obviously, when accidents happen, yes, there's the person who's been injured, but there could be witnesses and other people involved, especially in a workplace when there's a lot of people around. So that is another really good point that they would need that protection as well as you as the business. Yeah, yeah. It's really important to retain your witnesses if you're going to run to a trial, especially on liability. On many employees' liability policies, there is an element where insurers can make a payment for people attending a trial. Certainly, it's always worth exploring that to ensure that people stay committed to attending a trial, especially if they're your star witness. Yeah, I agree. I think sometimes witness evidence, yeah, isn't great. But I think if you've got some really good witnesses and you're obviously wanting to take that case to trial, then you think you've got a good chance of winning. You want to retain those witnesses and make sure they do turn up. I think it can be quite a daunting and scary experience as somebody who, you know, just witnessed an accident at work. They didn't ask to be there. They didn't want that to happen. And they're now being asked to stand in a courtroom and give evidence. So I think it's really important to look after those people, you know, checking on their well-being and make sure that they do attend trial. I think that's really important. Certainly what you don't want to do is go through the time and expense of getting to a trial, Mm -hmm. having to all fall down. Because ultimately, it's a lot of money if you do that one. Yeah, I think we all know trials can be extremely expensive. Thank you for joining us in the first of our Belang Claims podcasts. Yeah, it's been really interesting, I think, to just kind of talk about the case that we've discussed, but also what clients can do to help themselves. Obviously, if you've got any more questions, you want to talk to me or Gary about anything, then please just get in touch. And hopefully we'll be back soon with another exciting instalment of the Claims Voice of Belang. Thank you, everyone.